0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. That's the thing about potential. It was so close. What could have been, but didn't happen, and will never happen. The events did not line up perfectly, and it breaks your heart. The fear of death is very silly to me. I'm reassured that death is something... That all things before me and all things after me will go through. When it comes, I will know what it is. I just hope for a chance to say my goodbyes. I am more scared of going before my time, without having lived a full and meaningful life. This is a quote from one of Elisa Land's online posts, the subject of our story. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. up a little closer, lovey mine. cuddle up and be my little clinging vine, like to feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy, cause I love them, hey, welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Tara. And I am Jill. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real-life True Crime Book Club turned podcast, and we definitely encourage you to read along with us. If not, we certainly do the heavy lifting for you. Each month, we discuss a book that we've pulled off of our Murder Shelf, and as we like to do an in-depth review of each book, you can anticipate at least three separate episodes for the series. At least is a very long term because we've been keeping it to three. So don't worry. There's probably no fourth ones coming. (laughs) But we hope you are staying safe and healthy. And thank you for tuning in again. Listen, I want to thank the good citizens of Muskogee, Oklahoma, for their feedback on our last episode, the second cast from Killers of the Flower Moon, Finding Kristen Sue Richardson. Their overwhelming response has been a huge thank you to Tara and me for shining a spotlight on the case. A hearty, your welcome from both of us. We appreciate the trust you placed in us and thank you for listening. Keep sharing, keep talking, keep at it. Someone knows and by our collective due diligence, Tara and I believe we will all find out the truth of what happened. Find Kristen and bring her home and put a killer behind bars so that everyone will be safer. Keep listening, keep talking, keep sharing. That'll be the most important thing you'll ever do. Yep. Now, some more good news. The president has signed two bills into law addressing missing, murdered, and indigenous women. And I don't care what your politics might be. This is really good news. The first is Savannah's Act, named after Savannah LaFont Greywind. Savannah was a tribal member from North Dakota, and she was killed in 2017 when she was 22 years old and pregnant. Murder bookies, you may remember this case. Savannah was assaulted and killed when her neighbor, 36-year-old Brooke Cruz, kidnapped her and cut her unborn child from Savannah's womb, killing both of them. Now in 2018, Cruz was tried, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison for her crimes. Savannah's act establishes law enforcement protocols on missing and murdered indigenous women. It specifically directs the Justice Department to establish national guidelines for collaboration between the federal government and the Native American tribes with the goal of helping to track, solve, and prevent crimes against Indians. Amen. I am so glad this happened. The second law is the Not Invisible Act, and the name says it all. It directs the DOJ and the Department of the Interior to create a joint task force on violent crimes within and against the Native American communities. All good news, Tara. All good news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad something positive came out of the listening sessions that we discussed in our last episode, number 17. On a much less serious note, Hubby and I are settling into our new house. And Tara, I've had some of those well-known experiences that our Real Life Book Club members know so well. That a a worker or, you know, contractor comes into the house to fix something. And in this case, it was removing the dimmer lights. You know, those goes up and down right in the dining room. So that we could have smart lights that don't flicker installed. anyone relate to that one? Because that's not Mm -hmm. fun. And the sighting of my bookshelf with all the murder books on them. Serial killers, missing people, massacres. You get the idea. And I get this long stare from the electrician, followed by the long pause in conversation. And then the eyes start to narrow behind the mask. And, of course, I burst out laughing. I said, oh, you know, that's just my murder shelf, which does absolutely not make it better. (laughs) So the electrician was kind of quiet most of the time. And his son, yeah, his son was with us, too. He didn't say one word and stuck close to dad. So I can only imagine the stories they went home with that night. (laughs) The amount of looks that we've received in in in-person book clubs and we are doing them in like a public forum, right? Priceless. It's definitely something. Oh, it is. Uh, We we are not murderers, but hey, we still get the looks from police officers. So it's it's quite the funny time. It is, it is. So listen, what are we pulling off our murder shelf today, Tara? All right. So today is one that I'm sure, if not the book, the case, a lot of our listeners have heard of. We're going to take a dive into a book called *Gone at Midnight: The Mysterious Death of Eliza Lamb* by Jake Anderson. This is probably the most definitive source out there on this case. Granted, there is a ton of stuff online, which we'll definitely dive into. For anyone who doesn't know, or anyone who um, is a little bit odd on the detail, Eliza Lamb was a 21-year-old student from Vancouver, Canada who disappeared on January 31st, 2013, in downtown Los Angeles, never to be heard from again. Her body was found after a citywide search on the roof of the infamous Cecil Hotel, which is now renamed Stay On Me, in which she had been staying, and she was found floating in one of its four water tanks. Not a mark on her. Mm-hmm. And what is said to be her last moments alive are caught on videotape in the hotel elevator, in which we bear witness to a young woman exhibiting really bizarre behavior that went viral. And by viral, there's 70,000 organic Google searches. But it's literally one of those videos that everyone I feel like knows at this point. And this led law enforcement and armchair detectives down a seriously deep and dark red hole of conspiracy theory ranging from serial killers to the paranormal. And our author, Jake Anderson, is one of those who have been hooked Ever since seeing the tape, and he needed to know what happened. Oh, I remember looking at the tape, and I was fascinated by it too. And I'm like, "What is going on there?" Now, Jake Anderson is originally from Little Rock, Arkansas. He's a graduate from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Writer, filmmaker, investigative journalist, activist, web publisher with a popular website called The Ghost Diaries in which he analyzes cold cases and unexplained mysteries. I failed to go into that website yet, but I feel like I need to now that we're getting close to Halloween. Oh, At least in recording this. This might be released a little bit after Halloween, but if you're listening now, we hope you are enjoying your spooky season. Oh, my gosh, yes. Jake also is a contributing journalist to the anti-media, and he's a frequent guest on the radio show Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis, Spaced Out. Nocturnal Frequency, West of the Rockies, and Common Ground. Okay, Jake is not shy. No, not he's shy. shy. All right, he has researched the Lamb case for years. What changed his direction of research was Elisa's well-documented life online. Anderson claimed to have new evidence from sources that would include, quote, a police informant, an investigative journalist, private investigator, retired deputy coroner, a forensics expert, an LAPD psychologist, several hotel tenants, a bouncer, and a family member of a Cecil Hotel employee, end quote. Yeah, that fast. <laughs> His hopes in writing this book was not only to shed more light on the Lamb case, but also help alleviate the stigma surrounding mental illness so that those who are suffering in silence will speak up. And that's definitely one of the undercurrents of this book, which we'll definitely dive into a lot more detail. Definitely. We want you to know that it's okay to talk about your problems, especially during this time. When it's a pandemic, you might be experiencing some feelings that may not be normal to you. And you know what? That's perfectly normal. There are definitely people out there who want to listen to you. purchase your books and how you read them, a portion of the proceeds actually go to the Lamb family and mental health research and advocacy groups. So, maybe you might want to buy it now if you haven't already. just to kind of help out with that. And as always, we are a book club. We read these books. It So Elisa Jill. What do you mean for us? We're we eating. What are we eating? Okay. Since Elisa was Canadian and it is fall, I waste all these factors in picking the perfect Dessert or dish, so I decided to go for an easy but a classic Canadian dessert, Nanyano bars. I probably butchered the name, Canadians. I expect to hear from you to correct me. I'm pretty sure it's Nanaimo. Nanaimo? Okay. Nanaimo. We'll go with Nanaimo. I, yes. Nanaimo bar. One, one of my friends actually lives on this island, so I'm pretty sure it's Nanaimo. I'm gonna go with you, Tara, then, because I wasn't sure. I heard incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it is named for a city in British Columbia, just across the Saint George from Vancouver, where uh, Lisa hailed from. And is a no bake key point no bake three layer bar wafer nut and a coconut crumb bottom layer custard icing in the middle with a chocolate ganache on top. It's a perfect, fairly easy dessert to make for book club. So you mix the butter, the sugar, the chocolate in a double boiler. I'm not that fancy. I don't have a double boiler, so I put one saucepan on top of another. You did a double boiler for quarantine? I, I didn't. I'm sorry. Fail. I, I total <laughs> continue, fail. Right? Anyway, you mix in the graham cracker, coconut, almonds. If you're a nut fiend like me, you want to have the almonds. And that's the first layer. Then cream together some heavy cream, um, custard powder, or vanilla pudding. It, same result, really. Confectioner sugar mix that together that's layer two and that goes on top of one you chill that see how simple and then the final layer is chocolate melt the semi-sweet chocolate and butter in the microwave and when layer two is chilled you put it on top and ta-da it is absolutely fabulous easy to make fun to eat and you can find the recipe on our blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com under episode 18. And thank you, Martha J. Paul, for the terrific recipe. I just loved it. Well, I'm very sad that I can't eat these in person with you just because I have heard about these. And I said I do have a remote co-worker slash friend who actually lives there. And I remember thinking, wait, you moved, because he was in Toronto, (laughs) and he didn't realize he moved all the way to British Columbia. He was like, actually, they're really famous for bars that they make, He's like, so I'm going to go out and at least get some of those during quarantine. I was like, oh, I know what this is. It seemed like the (laughs) perfect dish to kind of honor Elisa, and I hope we did right. When Amazon gets their drones up, send me some. You're not that far away. You got it. I will. I will. So, coconut usually throws me for a loop with wine, especially when you mix it in with chocolate. So, it's hard to pick. And I really do feel like summer flew by. My mind and my body are back in, like, maybe May, <laughs> spring time. But I know that it's October now. It's getting cool. We had a really nice set of, like, 70-degree days. But some days it's actually been really quite cold. I definitely love it. But I'm going to throw everyone for a loop here and go with a fork. The one we're going with is a late bottle vintage port, which means that they pick the grapes late. You can kind of get these whenever, vintage wise, you can drink them. Usually they're about like seven years' age after they're actually picked. This is from Kaki that I picked up in a wine shop about seven years ago in Porto, (laughs) Portugal. So, literally, literally in the birthplace of port. So this is pure and a for me. This is the first port I ever really tried and the first bottle I ever bought. And the first taste of this is not overly sweet. It is fortified wine, so usually it's going to be a little bit sweeter. I think we went to Portugal in October when we went. So beautiful fall day, warmed me right up when we went in. And they're like, hey, you want to try some port? I'm like, yes, please. Mm-hmm. So this bottle actually traveled further than I did that trip. Long story short, after an airline strike, my bag traveled all the way to Belgium and showed up on my door a week later. And I didn't think this bottle had survived. I literally thought that I was going to open up my suitcase and I was going to literally have like shards of the bottle and like, all of my everything I was going to be safe to I was smart. I stuck it in my rain boot, my rubber knee-high rain boot, and it survived, so we were able to save it for a later date. Oh, thank God, because what would we be drinking? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) The funniest thing about this, too, is when I realized my bags were missing and they weren't showing up, I went to go report it, and they asked me, okay, what's in there? And I was just thinking the most important thing in there is this bottle of port, but, hey, my boots. And he asked me what brand they were, and I was like, oh, they're Chinese laundry." He goes, no, I know you have laundry in your bag. What? <laughs> brand of the booth, and I said no. It's, it's called Chinese Laundry. That's the brand of the food. So, <laughs> so, another interesting thing that went into it. Again, it did survive. Very happy to see that. So, when we drink this, we have primary flavors of plum, dried cherry, some chocolate notes, a bit of a raisiny finish. It's a sipping wine, so no big gulps here. You don't necessarily have to have a, a nice. You know, some people drink it out. Of tiny, like, full flute kind of thing, but you don't need to have that. You can actually make pork cocktails. I encourage anyone to look those up. But this is going to keep you nice and toasty and pair well with our coconut and chocolate treat. Oh, gosh, that sounds so good. Tara, our fantasy life of eating and drinking together is much better than my actual life. You realize that? I know. <laughs> One day, we're going to just have these bottles and foods all up, and we'll just have a nice little buffet line. Absolutely. Okay, so we're gonna get started as Jake Anderson does with Elisa. Elisa Lam, a Canadian Chinese student vacationing in downtown LA. Elisa's twenty one years old, black hair, brown eyes, five foot four, weighed one hundred and fifteen pounds. She was fluent in English and Cantonese. In a parent's worst nightmare, she disappeared from the Cecil Hotel where she was staying by herself january thirty first, twenty thirteen. Not a word had been heard since. She checked in with her parents every day until she didn't. Elisa was last seen by hotel employees in the lobby after returning from a trip to the last bookstore to buy souvenirs for her family on her last day in L.A. The police had searched the building from top to bottom twice. Their first search lasted a few days, but nothing concrete had been found. In a second search of the building... The canine unit had been brought in. Emphasis. Every nook and cranny had been searched, even the roof. And the police found nothing. So here we are again, at the Cecil Hotel, being the center of another bizarre circumstance. You're going to hear it again and again. Why would someone want to stay at a place nicknamed the Suicide Hotel? It's beyond me. And if you haven't heard of this, this is the hotel from season 4 of American Horror Story Hotel, which is based on. And if that doesn't freak you out, well then, L.A. also has of missing persons. So here's some stats for it. The Missing Persons Unit, or MPU. notes that 3,000 cases are filed annually in L.A. alone, compared to 750,000 nationwide, give or take. 80% 80% are found or come back of their own accord within the first 72 hours. However, that makes roughly 600 poor souls who never actually did get home. Some common reasons for people going missing are mental illness, depression, drug abuse, financial problems, abusive relationships. Sometimes someone just goes away and they don't want to be found. And the first 48 hours are crucial. Murder bookies, you should know this. There are... There's shows about this. There is a show called The First 48 or 48 Hours. I can't remember what the title is anymore. Both of them. Yeah, okay, there's two. <laughs> there's too many shows to watch and they all mesh together. Sometimes. <laughs> However, what you might not be aware of is that fine line that law enforcement needs to tread in terms of respecting wishes of a person who has disappeared because they want to versus doing what is right by the family because they just feel down that something's wrong. In our more technologically advanced society, we now have drones that will buzz around overhead, covering more ground than detectives and volunteers can on foot. There's also new tools that include predictive analysis, closed circuit television, CCTV for short, GPS darts, facial recognition, not to mention that cell phones can be tracked via GPS locators or pings off cell towers. We say it's mostly difficult to disappear nowadays, but there are those who we never are able to. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely. It stuns me. With cameras everywhere, people still manage to vanish into nothingness. So frustrating. Well, Anderson is a masterful writer and journalist. He pulls you in with facts, his own narrative and experience, and tons of foreshadowing. Oh, my God, the foreshadowing. So the the foreshadowing really threw (laughs) me a loop. Like, when is this going to come up? And it does, though. So how did he get onto the topic of Elisa Lam? Now remember, he curates and creates the content for a website called The Ghost Diaries. So someone sent him a video, and this is what the video showed. A young woman, shoulder-length, black hair, wearing a red hoodie with black cargo shorts. She enters the hotel elevator and inspects the button panel. She starts to press buttons, seemingly at random, and the doors remain open. Something outside the elevator catches her attention, maybe a voice, a noise. Her body becomes slightly rigid, nervous, agitated perhaps. She quickly lunges out the doors, looking down the right of the hallway, just outside the elevator. We can't really see anything except some carpet and the wall directly in front of the elevator. She backs into the elevator all the way into the far corner. A few moments pass and she's still standing in the corner, hands in her hoodie pockets. Anyone else think it's weird that the elevator doors haven't closed yet? Yes. Okay. She moves to stand at the threshold. She hops to the left, back to the front, where she waits to barely be seen on the left side of the screen. She goes back into the elevator, stands in the front of the button panel, to continually press nearly every single button doors stay open. She steps back into the hallway. She stands there for a moment and begins moving her hands about as if she's speaking with someone. The camera doesn't show anyone else besides her. Anderson makes a note that she waves her hand around in a strange dreamy movement, fingers splayed. He thinks, sleepwalking? Possessed? Possessed? Her behavior reminds him of others that he has seen when they've been high on psychedelic drugs. She moves out of camera shot. After some long seconds, which seems like an eternity, the elevator doors finally close shut. Alyssa is gone, never to be seen again. I know we'll talk about this later on, but it's one of those things where you watch it and you kind of know the context of the story and that. She is found dead on the roof of this hotel, but watching the sequence, it just does something to you that literally raises the hair on the back of your neck. Oh, yeah. It's just so bizarre. Every time you watch, and I will have a link to that on our blog, there's a million different YouTube videos, but I will link one of them for you. So, we have a ton of speculation on this video, conspiracy theory. Our armchair detective brethren have literally run wild with this. Believe she was on drugs, possibly LSD, mushrooms, PCP, anything to explain the odd behavior that many found so intensive to eat her lack of a better term or analysis. Others believe she might have been drugged. Maybe someone was stalking her. Some psychopath who had singled her out and was toying with her before he killed her. The timestamp is blurry. It's unreadable. And timestamps we know on videos are there for accuracy. It gives you the when. No one can read it. There's also speculation that 53 seconds of footage is actually missing. That the video has even been slowed down to make Elisa's behavior seem even more strange. Why would someone manipulate a video if not to hide something, especially if those 53 seconds are missing? And not to mention the sordid history of the location itself, the Cecil Hotel. There have been suicides, murders. Who serial killers even stay here during their killing series? Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and Jack Interweger, the Austrian ghoul. Now, this is before Elisa's time, and because this is Elisa's story, we're going to save those two for a second, guys. Just saying. We'll talk more about them okay. soon. In the meantime, while the search was intensifying for Elisa, one of the largest manhunts in L.A. was underway. Christopher Dorner, a disgraced LAPD officer, but actually, declared war on one of the largest police departments in the United States. In 2008, Dorner did the right thing. He accused another fellow officer, Teresa Evans, of abusing a person in custody. A review of the accusation concluded that Dorner had made it up. He was let go soon after. Dorner challenged his firing, but the California Court of Appeals dismissed the case. Dorner released a manifesto that outlined a plan which targeted police officers for execution. Where he accused his targets of deep-seated corruption, rampant racism, and police brutality. Flash forward to the present, and his vigilanteism took center stage. In the end, five people were dead and six others were injured, including Christopher Dorner, who took his own life. Needless to say, during these two episodes, resources are going to be split. Oise's chances of survival had plummeted. Remember, we said that eighty percent of people who go missing in LA are no longer missing after seventy-two hours. Elisa had unfortunately fallen to that 20%. She'd been missing for seven days. Yeah, seven days already. Now, back at the Cecil, something was wrong with the pipes. Water was having difficulty coming out of the faucets, being described as thick, brown, red sludge. I don't want to drink or bathe in that. Mm-hmm. No. Others who were still able to use it described it as having a funny, sweet, disgusting taste. Amy Price, the hotel manager, was debating on what to do next as she received a third complaint of the day, the 10th that week. Why, she was wondering, what to do now? Why? Why? Why wouldn't we fix this? Well, Cecil is an old building in a rundown neighborhood close to Skid Row. Business wasn't particularly booming. And most clientele weren't necessarily above board. It was a cheap place to stay in LA, and if you don't have anywhere else to go, the Cecil. So many transient types called the Cecil home. Now, Santiago Lopez is the maintenance worker at the Cecil, and he was on duty on February 19th, 2013, when he was asked to check out the plumbing complaints. The Cecil is an E-shaped building, 600 rooms in all, and Lopez was usually work from one wing to the other. However, today he was going to be going back and forth, visiting the same wing twice in a short span of time, trying to figure out what was happening with the plumbing. He didn't necessarily believe the rumors that he had heard about the Cecil, but something was undeniably strange about his place of employment. What he didn't like telling others was that he'd get this odd sensation in his hands, described as prickling, whenever he would spend time on the seventh or eighth floors. He made it down to the fourth floor, room four fifty one, which had been the site of a bizarre occurrence. A man reported waking up in the middle of the night, being choked by an invisible force. Huh. Maybe. Right. So as Santiago Lopez made his way through the tenants and the guests who had their complaints, the next logical step would be to go and check the water source. Using his key, he was able to make it out to the roof. Had he just pushed the door open, an alarm would have sounded that would have rattled the whole hotel. So he walked out to the 4,000-gallon water cisterns that sat on the edge of the hotel roof, and Anderson describes the towers in detail. Quote, Each tower was 10 feet tall, 6 foot in diameter, situated on a 4 foot platform. Accessing much less service then was not easy. Not easy at all. He ascended a narrow ladder to the first platform. To reach it, he had to slither between the tanks and plumbing equipment. That brought him to a second ladder, where he scaled along the tanks itself, and that finally delivered him to the top. Each cistern lid was 18 by 18 inches and was quite heavy. Lopez testified to the fact that one of the first things he saw was that one of the tanks was open. As he gazed down into the water, he saw red. The body of a woman bobbed lifelessly in the water, her red hoodie floating beside her. To the lid being open here, definitely, because that's one of the most intended facts or fictions of this case. Oh yeah. But police received a call from the Cecil about the discovery of this body on February 19th at about 10 AM. With the LAPD and the LA Fire Department arrived on the scene shortly after. Captain Janie Moore of the Fire Department stated that the lid to the cistern was too small for their equipment that would allow them to remove the body. Therefore, they had to drain the tank and use lasers to cut a hole into the side. At 1.45 p.m., it was confirmed that a body had been found inside one of the water tanks at the Cecil Hotel. Ogies' parents confirmed that the body was hers. One thing was for certain, how anyone, let alone Elisa, would have been able to access the cisterns is absolutely baffling. Remember how we just told you how Lopez had to get up there just to check the lids? Anyway... An autopsy was performed, and the initial autopsy report showed that the cause of death was undetermined. The coroner's office wasn't going to release further information until a full toxicology had been completed. This was indicative of the belief that perhaps Elisa was under the influence of drugs at the time of her passing. And if so, we've seen the video, was it her own choosing or had she been drugged? Anderson goes on to say that some of the fibers and debris found on Elisa's body would not be disclosed to the public for about six months with other details not being released for a full year. It's a long time. Oh, yeah. And in an ominous turn, it seems that some of the details would never, ever be revealed. So needless to say, after two large-scale searches where police had searched literally every nook and cranny, even with a canine unit. Every nook and cranny. Every nook and cranny canine units. They missed something. Let's talk about feathers for a minute for dogs to float on the roof. Also, was it a tracking dog or a corpse sniffing dog? I don't know if anyone's seen that episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> it, <laughs> he thinks that he has a cork sniffing dog in, in a, a property that he finds. The dog, like, is attention at a scent, it turns out just to be a bra buried <laughs> underneath the foundation. Yeah. Anywho, it's an air scent, it's what it's actually called. So we actually learned a lot about these types of dogs, I believe in another book that we read, but tracking dogs are used in the case of missing persons, where it's likely that that person still alive. So an scent dog is going to be used to pick up the origin of a corpse scent and specifically look for cadavers. Both dogs are highly trained to detect skin particles that humans shed, at, believe it or not, are ridiculous, right? We shed a ton. So make sure you're dusting your home a lot, because that's where dust comes from. But cadaver dogs learn the differences between animal and people decomposition smells. So bodies that might be in water or underneath snow and rubble, that kind of thing. Needless to say, wouldn't either type of dog pick up on the scent of Elise on the stairs leading up to the roof or even over to the water tanks if she had actually been up on the roof while still alive or even dead? Mm-hmm. Had her body been somewhere previously then moved up there? This honestly just leads to a lot more questions. That still bothers me. We really don't have the answers. Now, Elisa's body, for all intents and purposes, had been in this cistern on top of the hotel where she was staying for roughly two weeks. The L.A. County Department of Public Health had tread lightly as they had a problem on their hands. They needed to ensure that the water of the Cecil was safe for public drinking. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it was not safe for public drinking. Especially since they are already drinking it and had been complaining for 10 days. Oh, God. A do not drink order was established. So think about it. These people had been bathing, drinking, brushing their teeth with water where a dead body had been submerged for over two weeks. That's enough to give anybody the heebie-jeebies. However, the tests did come back negative for coliform bacteria, aka known as human waste. That's astonishing. Uh, yeah. Especially with the the sludgy, chunky water. Yeah, that That's was sludge. Oh. The whole hotel water system was flushed and filled with mm-hmm. new water. I'm just trying not to gag. This is just awful. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. All right, so, okay, before we move on further, here are some of the facts of the case. The detectives assigned to Elisa's case were Wallace Tenille and Greg Stearns, two veteran detectives of the LAPD. Stearns, known for being a skilled interrogator, and Neil, a devoted police officer,s who believed that an officer should be ingrained in the community in which he or she served. Now they had a body, she had been found naked, With her clothes near her. Well, maybe her clothes. I mean, because one of the items was listed as a pair of men's shorts. The clothes were covered in sand-like particles, whatever that means. How could she have gotten up there, though? That's the question that bothers me. Now, there are four ways to get up there. There are three fire escapes connecting to interior doors of the hotel. And then a staircase leading from the 14th floor. However, that particular door is supposed to trigger that alarm that we talked about. So if it's accessed by someone without the proper credentials, the alarm goes off. Mm -hmm. So we have to believe that Alyssa somewhere lost her glasses. They were never found. She wasn't wearing them in the surveillance video. And at this point where she has to lean in super close to the panel button to read the buttons, you know she's not wearing her glasses or contacts of any kind. If she were impaired, either by alcohol or some kind of illicit drug, it's highly impossible that she would have made it out and onto the roof and up to the water tanks on her own. Because that doesn't make any kind of sense. Nope. Okay, if that was the case, though, and she had closed herself in the tank... How did she do that? That's another question in itself. Right. So the police claimed to have searched the roof twice, but they didn't notice the lid being open on the water tank where she would later be found. Because remember, Santiago Lopez, the maintenance worker at the Cecil, had gone up to the roof to check things out when the tenants and guests were complaining about the water, and he found the tank open. Mm-hmm. So. Open, closed, open, closed. Uh, yeah, so there's some other high strangeness too. A resident heard some strange noises from the fourth floor, and there's some other really weird graffiti near the water tanks. So I have a million questions here. <laughs> there's a lot going on, but so let's take a short break from the case, just how Judith does. Yes. Yes. Okay. We like to follow along in the author's footsteps. Yep. So we're going to follow suit. So it's time to talk about the rise of sexism. So this might seem like we're taking a really high turn here, but we really aren't. This is literally how the book goes. It's a murder book. We know some of you qualify here. We ourselves sometimes qualify here. Oh, and there totally. Is a ton of research in terms of trying to figure out and solve cases, and that was what our second cast was all about last time, trying to solve the case. So taking the time to delve down, some deep, dark rabbit holes to find the clues that will break that whole case, that unsolved murder. And just like Michelle McNamara, who wrote I'll Leave in the Dark, like in our first series, we go, we're on the keyboard searching, searching that wide, wide world of the wonderful internet where we had access to so much information. And Jake Anderson wrote, these are, quote, people for whom the prospect of cracking an unsolved murder ranks higher than almost any other human accomplishment, end quote. I don't disagree. I don't. Here's another statistic for you, dare I say, fun fact? One-third of murders in the U.S. are unsolved. It has 200,000 homicides in nineteen sixty. country. Many aren't even considered a whole case because they are being actively worked on law enforcement, or so they say. And that's where the website comes in. Law enforcement can be overwhelmed at solving each case. They don't have the manpower or the resources in order to hunt down every feed, every whisper, every clue. That's where all of you come in. One of the first and largest online communities was the DOE Network, launched in nineteen ninety one. And often called Facebook of the Dead, the network is a crowdsourced database of missing persons and unidentified bodies. They also have a nickname due to how much havoc they wreak on law enforcement. They call them Go Nuts. Not Donuts. Uh-huh. So, D-O-E, Nuts. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> Don't uh-huh. underestimate a true crime junkie who often say for a cancer However, law enforcement professionals do believe that because a number of these sleuths don't have the appropriate training, that there's a high level of vigilantism in amateur detective work happening which we'll see in cases of both. However, many are absolutely serious in what they are doing and are absolutely determined and able researchers. And we have seen many start to help solve cases, a murder squad, as we just did in the case of Kristen Sue Richardson. So keep those tips coming in. Now, recall that Paul Haynes collaborated with Michelle McNamara. Remember, he was dubbed the kid early in her book on the Golden State Killer case. And his knowledge was incredible. Paul is an early web sleuther. He used his own time, energy, finances, and God-given intellect to dig deep into the case. And some of these people are just incredibly knowledgeable. And it's if they were personally trained by Sherlock Holmes. And then on the other end of the spectrum, some can be total conspiracy crazies. That spectrum is very interesting to play along. Now, I do many different types of work in crowdsourcing because I work with the Without Worrying podcast when I'm cheating on Tara. So if I can work with people of the Paul Haynes caliber, it is a huge plus for me. Definitely. Yeah. I, the other end, Ooh, it's always fun, though. Always fun. Mm-hmm. Two major changes in the web sleuthing movement, and I do want to call it a movement because it's almost a norm now, occurred in 2004-2005. First, Trisha Griffith purchased Web Sleuths, turning it into one of the most popular crowdsourcing sites dedicated to solving true crime. Then came Reddit. I'm sure you've been up all night on some creepy weird tangents on Reddit. Then there were subreddits devoted to the case. You know, it divides out into many, many sections. Finally, in 2007, so the National Institute of Justice created a database called the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, the NAMUS, N-A-M-U-S. In a census conducted by the NIJ, they found that there could be roughly 40,000 unidentified bodies in morgues or unmarked graves across the United States. Some estimates put that at 60,000. Not to mention that at any given time, 100,000 persons are considered actively missing. That's a lot of people and a lot of heartache. All right, Deborah Halber, author of The Skeleton Crew, believes that web sleuthing has had a considerable effect on how law enforcement feels about crowdsourcing, especially when these unorthodox methods have led to solving a number of cases that would have otherwise been left on a dusty shelf. Just as we have seen countless times, those who cannot get the police to listen or are too afraid to go to the police with information, who do you think they'll go to? Web sleuths. Many sleuths are diligent and methodical in their methods. There are definitely those who are out there who could be major blockers in solving cases, though. Manufacturing leads and evidence, conspiracy theories, you name it. Sometimes it's hard to weed out the facts from the fiction. Anderson himself ran into this while investigating the Elias Lund case. Now, we know that this case is very widely well-known due to the web sleuthing community. And while we may know about her, murder boogies, uh, you can ask around, and those who might not wholly be into true crime might say, Alyssa Lam, who? Did you know that there is a psychological phenomenon called the, quote, missing white woman syndrome? All right, more or less, this leads to a collective consciousness or the systemic racial bias that we are all working to unlearn. That the police, that television producers, etc. are more inclined to look for white women. And Alisa Lamb was not white. And thank God we're now working on the stigma of mental illness, because this is another factor into why her story did not get the media attention or time in the news that it probably deserved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, both of these are extreme and very unfortunate, and factors that should never take away from any missing person or homicide case in order to shed light where the police may not be looking. And as we have seen more frequently, web sleuths are going to be the heroes and not always the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People without a badge seem to be more trusted lately. So web what? sleuths are a blessing and a curse. They are. And especially during COVID, when you're stuck in the house, web sleuths have even more time to snooze. I know mm-hmm. I have. I know. I know (laughs) you. God knows I have. I know at the beginning I haven't. Don't want to say I haven't had the time. I don't know where my time goes anymore. I know Billy Judson and Paul Holes of the Murder Squad. They were actively calling out people to say, "Hey, sleuths out there, let's crowdsource this and like let's get it solved." But remember, they have those rules, and I refer you to them. Check them out because they have very, very strict rules on how you go about doing that. But Good yep. to have. Yep. Rules, as I always say, rules are good to follow. Yep. So Anderson also found out something very interesting about Cecil Hotel. And the relationship of the long-term tenants and the police was fairly cyclical. So tenants would avoid calling the police as they felt they would be ignored due to the reputation of those hotel. And when the police were actually called, they'd do anything they could to avoid showing up. You have to wonder if this relationship contributed to the city underbelly of the hotel, the rampant suicides, murders, drug use, paranormal activity. And now, this is a good segue into a guy named John Gordon, who created a YouTube show called Brain Scratch. His goal was to collect everything that he could about a particular case, a mysterious case, and present it to others in order to help solve. So one of the very first episodes he put out was on the Alisa Lamp case, and Worden had holes. He didn't want anyone to associate the paranormal with this case. And as Anderson puts it, he wanted to focus on demonstrable empirical evidence. There was definitely something odd going on here, and Lorden knew it. And that was when he started pointing out the irregularities of the case, and in particular the video footage. Right, just. Full disclosure, I should add that I kind of indirectly know John Lorden. He's collaborated with Sheila Waisaki, the private investigator I do research for, and on the Christian Andriacchio case. John noted the timeline that i prepared for the sequence of events as we were trying to figure out what happened in this really complex, tear-your-hair-out-of-your-head-and-scream case. So if you've heard the podcast Culpable, you might be familiar with Christian's story. John Lorden's a stand up guy and not given to flights of fancy. He follows the evidence and I admire him greatly. So we'll get into these irregularities that he found. And Jill's not crazy either, so we can, we can take her reference. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We can take her reference. Thank you for that backup there. <laughs> so, first, John noted that there should be more surveillance footage, right? Not just a singular video of Lisa and Miss particular elevator. What about other footage in the hotel? Mind you, this is a 600 room hotel with three wings, and I'm sure we'll have pictures up on our blog for you, and hopefully we can find like a hotel map, but this is not a small hotel. So there should be cameras elsewhere other than just the elevator. Other cameras that are streaming that would be able to show her movements from the moment she walked through the door to the time she was last seen outside the elevator. Not only that, the footage that we do have was such a low quality that it's almost difficult to actually truly identify her. And believe it or not, there's definitely more footage out there, but this has been the only video that the public has actually been allowed to see. Keyword, in case you didn't hear my answer. Sorry, allowed. Yeah, yeah, I think he makes a really good point there. All right, second, Elisa's. Cell phone or her cell phones were never found. Now, this has only produced more questions. Was the phone recovered? And we were just never told. Did the police ever track her phone? We don't know for sure. Third, Elisa's Tumblr account was still updating months after her disappearance. Was this the ghosts of Elisa at work? All right, no, there's a truly logical explanation here. There is a setting on Tumblr where you can auto generate posts. Therefore, this feature was most likely turned on. Right? Conspiracy theorists will tell you that because her phone was never located, the killer must have it and is updating her Tumblr account. If you're not familiar with Tumblr, Instagram has the same type of rings available. Yeah. Right. Fourth point the weird graffiti found on the roof. We're going to be a bit gruff here and quote this directly from the book. It is a Latin phrase that was painted onto the side of the water tank where Elisa's body was found. And it said, "fecto cunt her summa, which translates to, In fact, she was a cunt. Or, it's the best pussy. Graffiti. Yeah. Pleasant. Yeah. So, remember when we spoke about the roof access... So according to the hotel staff, the roof should not be accessible. However, the proof is in the pudding. Mm -hmm. Someone is up on the roof. They're writing graffiti, all right? The security is breached. There's no alarm bells, though there should be alarm bells going off. Exactly. All right. Tagged is a term associated with graffiti, which suggests that the artist anticipates others will view their work. So they knew other people might be on the roof. Well, yeah, you don't put graffiti where people aren't going to look at it. You put it where people are going to look at it. So is this a coincidence? Or did the artist know that people have frequented the roof and then could be an inhabitant of the Cecil themselves? Although not paranormal, another creepy aspect is that on the same day of her disappearance, January 31st, Elisa posted in her Tumblr account, quote, It was odd how men use the word to demean women when it's the only part of a woman they valued End quote. An odd parallel, huh? You have to wonder, did she see that and then write about it later? i- I don't know. Anderson and Lord in question if she may have been up on the roof herself. Did she offend the person who wrote it? was the person who wrote it the killer. My gut reaction is she definitely was up there when she saw it. Yeah, I mean, it seems too coincidental. I mean, we see a lot of what we'll call and what Anderson calls synchronicity in terms of the events that kind of are uncovered throughout this whole case. And for her to post that and also have that be up on the roof, it just seems a really bizarre, strange coincidence that she was not up on there And she referenced somewhere creepers are following her or something like that. And I think at some point, if somebody is stalking her, she feels somebody's following her. Does she offend somebody? It's a very high improbability, but we have to kind of look at every aspect, especially since this case is technically unsolved. Kara, I'm just curious because I am older than you. Do women generally call each other cuss? Cons- no. It's. Okay. It's um, just. just- making sure I wasn't in some kind of age generational gap, right? That's a male thing, right? It's a male thing. And this actually threw me for a loop when I was reading this, only because it's very rare to hear that word thrown out in general context. It's actually one that I know makes people feel very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, I never really reference it, but sometimes it's like, oh, she was acting like a see you next Tuesday. But you never actually say the word; it's exactly. just like an acronym because people do not like the word. People get really up in arms about this word, which is why when we say this, it's usually a direct quote from the book. But this was graffiti that was written on there. But she uses. It. Mm-hmm. There was a trigger for that. She didn't just plop it out of the air. I will. I will draw down on that one. Yeah. So either she has encountered, and I mean, I. I don't know where she would have encountered a lot. Granted, I don't encounter it a lot, but for her to say, hunt again, it could have been something where she was hearing it more frequently in the area that she was in. Maybe there was catcalling. I don't know. She's close to Skid Row, so mm. we know that there is a lot of homelessness, a lot of mental illness, a lot of drug use in this particular area, so the language could be a little bit more crude. I don't want to make that particular assumption, though. Seems like she's seeing this around a lot. Yep, I agree. I totally agree. Can't guarantee you it was on the roof, but she definitely heard it and it was triggered. She saw it, she heard it, something in her environment. Okay, okay. we're on the same page again. Yep, 99 out of 100 pages. <laughs> so, Following along in Other web sleuth Shoes, there is one man named Kay Tang and he took it a step further. He flew from Hong Kong to retrace Elisa's steps, bringing a camera with him to document the layout of the hotel. And at the 14th floor elevators, the last time Elisa was seen alive, he had five questions that he wrote down that he intended to answer. And this is an excerpt from page page fifty-one of the hard copy print book. So, do the doors of the elevator remain open? Yes, the doors remain open. Remember how we all thought it was kind of strange that the doors stayed open? Said yes. The doors remain open when you push the buttons to other floors. They only close when you press the door close button, or if someone on another floor has pressed the elevator button outside the elevator to signal the elevator to go to their floor. Which seems odd. I don't think I've ever really been on an elevator where actually I actually have to push the door close button in order to make sure that like I'm going someplace. Yeah, I haven't either. I've sped it up that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that I not that I had to do it to move. And considering that there's 600 rooms in this hotel, you have to wonder, A, how many people are actually staying here or living here if the doors remained open for that long without her hitting the door closed button. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the second question was, how many buttons and panels are there outside the elevator? And Kay said that there are just two buttons on the outside panel, one up, one down. Third question, how does the hold button work? The hold button does work, and John Lurden later tested it to learn that the doors remain open for approximately two minutes when it's time. So, considering the fact that she went and she pushed every single button, she could have probably pushed the hold button too. Thus, leaving the doors open for an extended amount of time, which was still kind of creepy to me, but it does explain a lot. Four, what can you see from the inside? So from the inside of the elevators, on the wall opposite the elevator is a round mirror, which allows you to see if anyone is outside the elevator. And the placement of this mirror also means that Elisa would have been able to see a reflection of herself when she's standing in the hallway. And then the last question, what can you see if you look outside the elevator? So there are two blind spots, and they are Fire skate. I feel like one step forward, two steps back. I know. Paranormal, on our own, other people. Where are we going? Well, I'll tell you where we're going. Jake Anderson gives us a chapter dedicated to Elisa and who she was, what she was doing with her life, what she wanted to do with her life, and her struggles with mental illness. And I'm really, really glad that Jake does this. I know we always spend time on who the victims were, especially... We did in second cast on Liz Kendall's book, The Phantom Prince, on her relationship with Ted Bundy. The victim always deserves a voice. And Jake gives Elisa substance, just as we're trying to do here. The one thing that this case has going for it is that Elisa left very rich breadcrumbs as she consistently documented her life online. Elisa was smart, she went to a small high school that was extremely competitive adding to teenage angst, of course. She loved to read. The Great Gatsby was a favorite and would pop up from time to time in her writings. She was on the student council. She played volleyball. This was in addition to being on the cross-country team. Anderson notes that she had a, quote, variety of interests. Ah, yet something was beginning to take shape inside her, a rebellion of sorts, even against the things that she loved. Elisa had no desire to drink or to party, which essentially ostracized her from some groups of students, and then subsequently labeled her as boring. And while having a large Asian population in Burnaby, where she lived, she noted that she tended to be excluded due to her ethnicity. So, Elisa had a second blob called Etherfields, and this is where she kept the darker side of her life that was rampant with depression. It was her way of kind of getting things out. Comments from those visiting her page painted a sad yet a hopeful picture, those offering advice and pleading with her to speak to someone, maybe a therapist, about the way that she was feeling. Now, around 12th grade was when things began to change for the worse, and it's a heartbreaking struggle. In one post, Elisa wrote that depression was the most debilitating humiliating disease I have ever been subjected to. It makes a fool of you. It sucks out every shard of hope or motivation that you've ever had in your body, and it makes you want to destroy yourself. Whew. It's tough to read. It is. She documented all of this very, very well, which is actually one of those things that was supposed to help you, too. Yeah. Over the course of 2011 and 2012, we know that it only gets worse for Elisa. Anderson notes that she could be recognized more for it in herself, as evident in these blog posts that she called Adventures in Hypomania. In one such post, she notes that she hasn't slept in over 24 hours. And it's near the end of the year where she returns to thoughts of suicide and shares them on her blog post an idea that really terrified her. She couldn't keep up with her course load anymore, and she had to drop out of two classes. She needed to get her shit together. And we know Elisa did end up seeing a therapist who prescribed antidepressants. The unfortunate thing about antidepressants, as Anderson would note as well, because he also suffers from depression, is that it can take years to find that correct balance for you. Remember, this is about a chemical imbalance in your brain, and you're lucky if you find something that works for you on your first attempt, and that's not likely to happen. It also didn't help that she felt betrayed by many of her close friends. Elisa felt that she was being left behind because she didn't fit in mold with the rest of her peers. Finding it difficult to make friends, feeling this betrayal, it hit her really hard. And this betrayal might not have been a true betrayal on her friend's part, because they may not have had the wherewithal to figure out how to help her, thus leading her to her own self-imposed isolation and possibly her solo West Coast tour, for which she planned to be in San Diego, Los Angeles, Santa Cruz, and San Francisco. And anyone who followed her online had access to this itinerary, she even requested suggestions on where to go and what to do in addition to meetups. So that's the one thing, too, is she was online. Everyone had access to her personal private life, where she was, what she was doing. Yes, yeah, sometimes you can overshare. Mm-hmm. All right, so I, I just had to say this, though, just a note. It, if you are depressed, it does get better. As black and heavy as it seems right now, it will ease, and medication really can help. It might take you a while to figure all that out, but it it can help. Some people don't get help because they believe that psychological disorders are just for the weak or that they can just, you know, power through on their own. Well, do we power through with strep throat? I mean, it's only a sore throat, right? Right. Well, no, of course not. We go to the doctor and we get medication for that. And if one antibiotic isn't sufficient, you switch and you try a higher dose or a different antibiotic. This just happened with my husband's sinus infection. He didn't shrug and decide that medication's for the weak. I have herniated discs in my neck, and I take medication to avoid devastating headaches. So medication for psychological disorders is the same. They treat an illness. It doesn't mean you're weak. Does it mean you're inferior? Does it mean you're unable to cope with your life? It just means that you need a medication to treat a disease. That's all it means. Okay, so just a thought, and I hope that some people will consider that for what it's worth. So mental illness and homicide are two trends running through this narrative. And the third is paranormal activity. Mental illness was actually once viewed as being caused by the unearthly, an affliction by the devil. And Anderson says, quote, 75% of Americans believe in some kind of paranormal or supernatural activity. Around the world, that number may be even higher. End quote. What do you think? So this book actually gives me a lot of creepy feels, and not disregarding true crime, but the otherworldly realm of the paranormal. I think I'm in that 75%. I think I'm there, too. There's just too much to not go unnoticed, to not be in that high percentage. And I believe I had an experience one time. I'm not sure if I remember it correctly. It, it might have just been me being young. I think I was maybe like third or fourth grade. I was in a creepy old house with one of my girlfriends. I was at a sleepover. It was just the two of us and um, we were getting ready to go to bed and we heard something upstairs which was in the attic. And I was with my friend and she was kind of like straightening up things and I was like, oh, did you hear that? She's like, let's just get into the bed and get under the covers, like kind of ignoring me a little bit, but not really saying anything, just rushing to get into bed. And she's like, just put the covers over your head and just try it. And I was like, oh, are we playing a game? Like, what are we doing here? So I proceeded to hear things upstairs. Like, just kind of like a shuffling, a creak. And then I heard footsteps. I'm thinking, oh, maybe it might be her mom. She went upstairs. And I tried to, like, start asking something, and she just went underneath the covers. Finger over her mouth, like in the shh. And we still had a light on, so I could see her kind of beneath the covers. And then I heard the door open. She was just staring at me with her finger over her mouth. Door opens, just laying there. I feel something glide over the comforter, like making sure that we are there, and then shuffling door closes back up the stairs to the attic. And after that, my friend was like, "Oh, we can get up and do whatever we want now." And I was like, "Oh, I thought we were getting ready for bed." And she was like, "No, no, no, that was..." Her mom. Yeah, just there. I can't believe it. So that was definitely something creepy that happened to me. Jill, have you actually had any experiences since I shared mine? I've had a few where I've seen some things and yeah, where I've gone, okay, that's not supposed to be opening and closing by itself. My general response is, welcome. Oh, we'll share. You know, I'm kind of just rolling with it. Yeah, I uh, I accept that sometimes you see things that don't make sense to you and it doesn't mean you're insane. It just means you saw something that maybe most people don't get a chance to get a glimpse of. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And not going to fight about it with people <laughs> and say, "No, you were crazy, you were sleepwalking, you were that whatever." Explain it however you want. I I know what I've seen. Multiple times. So, it's like, okay. Then and Anderson did share an experience with us in the book. He said that he grew up as an atheist, and during his time at the University of California at Santa Cruz, he had an experience. At one point, nearly everyone in his dorm claimed to be woken up in the middle of the night with the feeling that someone was choking them in their sleep. Nearly every single person choking, being choked in their sleep, creepy. So he and his roommate actually discovered that a former student had committed suicide about five years earlier. So could this be residual energy due to the traumatic way this poor student met this tragic end? Possibly. Anderson believes that something preternatural visited him in the quad one day, a figure that was always fuzzy just outside his peripheral. And he still didn't quite believe, but following Eliza down this paranormal thread, it was about to change his mind. Well, yeah, that's enough to creep you out that you feel like you're being choked. That would definitely catch my attention. Yeah, he's probably experienced something real. I'm certainly not going to be one to tell him, no, you didn't, no, it was a this, no, it was a that. This is the man's experience. This is what he experienced. Mm-hmm. So, good. Anyway, the Cecil Hotel is on the paranormal tourism circuit, which means that people are capitalizing on these tales and that they hear from those who have already lived or have stayed at the Cecil that have a kind of ghostly bent to them. So believe it or not, you know, as we knew it, it is, it's is—it's a haunted hotel. And I think that's probably why they did feature it on American Horror Story. But it's not only haunted in America. This is one of the most haunted hotels on Earth. Yeah. There are those like Natalie Davis, a psychic medium with credentials, and she believes that the energy residing at the Cecil Hotel, whether it's an entity or just that residual energy, is prone to thought insertion. Now, Natalie didn't know anything about the hotel when she visited. When staying in room 943... She had a thought when she first walked into the room. Boom. Wow. If I wanted to kill myself, I could just open this window and jump. Now, mind you, these are not normal thoughts for her. Natalie also discovered that a woman staying in this exact room decades earlier had, in fact, jumped to her death. Another odd occurrence was noted by Natalie during her stay is that an alarm clock going off without her setting it, cold spots in the elevator's, Mysterious phone calls with no caller on the other end. And, of course, she was there when Alyssa went missing. When the clumpy, dark matter was glooping out of the faucet. Another psychic, Joni Mahan, believes that if Alyssa was already suffering from mental illness, that she would have been more susceptible to having paranormal experiences which could explain some of the images on Alyssa's Tumblr of people jumping out of buildings, especially if she did not know the sordid past of the Cecil. And I don't believe that she did, given that she seemed surprised that it was kind of run down and seedy. Now, it's Joni's firm belief that Alyssa was murdered by someone either living or working at the hotel that was taken over by a dark entity residing there. I can see it. Sure. I could definitely see it. So, here's where we're going next. We're really going to climb into the quagmire. But it's fun. Sure is. There's a local radio host who studied the history of the Cecil Hotel for years, and his name is Clyde Lewis. He's spoken at length about a theory that he calls the synchronicity of evil. The original theory, having been developed by Carl Jung, posited that seemingly random coincidences can be connected across time and space. And that ties into Jung's theory on the collective unconscious. All humans have a vast unconsciousness vault of memories, imagery, impulses that are common to all of us, that we're unaware of, but it impacts us nevertheless. And as one of my favorite podcasts, Astonishing Legend, always says, everything is connected. I believe that. Mm -hmm. So first, there are two movies the same called Dark Water. One is a Japanese version that debuted around 2002, the other an American one hitting theaters around 2005, so a few years apart. So well before the Eliza Land case. However, here's where it gets weird. And we need to put spoilers in here, so if you haven't seen it, stop listening now. If you do not want these movies to be ruined, feel free to go watch them and come back. But spoilers are ahead. Anyway, In both movies, the main character is a little girl, Cecilia and or Cece. She's a hotel, play on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The little girl's red jacket, similar to a red hoodie that Elisa was wearing, is in both movies, which is strikingly similar to that that she wore when she was missing. So characters in each film are constantly pushing on buttons in the elevators, similar to Elisa's actions in the surveillance state. Anderson points out the kicker here. The little girl falls into a water tank on a roof of a building and drowns. And holy shit, should you not, the tagline of the 2005 version is, quote, some mysteries are not meant to be solved. (laughs) I'm very Seriously. So either we have a very big, premonition of what was going to happen roughly a decade later or this was an elaborate scheme carried out on Elisa that was based on this movie. These coincidences are unbelievable. Like, this shit just doesn't happen. (laughs) And, And guess what? It doesn't stop there. During the time that Elisa went missing, there was an outbreak of tuberculosis in the LA area tuberculosis. Haven't seen this for a while, right? I mean, there are cases of it still, but an outbreak? Yeah, that's weird. So, guess what the name of the test was that was given to these patients? L-A-M-E-L-I-S-A. In case you can't spell, LAM, Elisa. You've got to be kidding me, right? I read this and nearly fell off the bed backwards. That was literally the damn cherry on top. Is that this test was created at the same university where Alisa attended undergrad, the University of British Columbia. All right, now, the science minded are going to say that this is just coincidence. It just happened to be a coincidence. You know, the movie just happened to happen that way, and Cecil, Cecilia, and all that. No, I think it's more than that. I'm not going to get into the whole thing now because it's an involved story, but I shared it with Lori Morrison when I was a guest on the Unlovely Truth podcast, episode 11. So go listen if you want to hear that story. I know I'm teasing you, and that's terrible, but believe me when I tell you there is more than coincidence working around us. Cue that mysterious music, Jill. Where's where's that mysterious (laughs) 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 music? Yeah. unsolved mystery. <laughs> right now. Further theories are actually going to link Elisa to the infamous Black Dahlia case. The Black Dahlia was a woman named Elizabeth Short. So the murder, mutilation, and dismemberment of her body was by far one of the most sensationalized crimes. horrified, right? Yeah, it was pretty bad. This is just friggin' eerie. Getting back to something that we might all be a little bit more comfortable with, the body language, right? We've talked about the video and and figuring out who's lying and and facial expressions, all of this. Well, there are two experts that Jake Anderson met to discuss the surveillance tape of Elisa. And one was Jack Brown, who gave an in-depth breakdown, second by second, of Elisa's body language in the video. And the second was Cinderella, Hu, who focused on body language and micro-expressions. Now, there's a lot of people who believe that Elisa was terrified in that tape. However, these two tell a different story. For Dr. Brown, Elisa doesn't seem fearful when we first see her in the video and that's based on her gait and wide arm movements. When she presses her back to the wall after hitting all the buttons, she's kind of neutral, judged by the position of her feet and the relaxed arms. Then it changes only slightly. Still no fear, but perhaps a little you know, apprehension, a little of self-esteem. After stepping out of the elevator and then coming back in, her hands are held in what we call a fig leaf configuration with her feet close together. And Doctor Who affirms Dr. Brown's speculation that Elise is not fearful, but notes that everything changes at the exact point in time as Doc Brown. This is in the 33 seconds into the video. Now, Who offers two reasons for the change in the behavior. She either saw someone who elicited fear or was thinking about someone who triggered the same reaction. She backs into the elevator as this most likely offered a safe haven. However, when she jumps back out of the elevator, both who and Brown see this as almost playful. Her hands are still in that fig leaf configuration, but her stance widens. Brown believes these two contradictory elements to her body language showcase that her emotions may be a little bit out of whack. You think? Yeah. Right? There's a wide range of emotion in under a minute, which could be due to the medications that she's taking or that she wasn't taking or possibly a chemical imbalance caused by her bipolar disorder. Now, here's the interesting thing. For a total of 16 seconds, Alisa puts her hands behind her head, elbows out, armpits exposed, running her fingers in her hair. This particular cluster is usually indicative of sexual desire. So the person she is thinking of is either right outside the elevator, out of sight, or she's having a vivid daydream about this person. Next, she goes back into the elevator, steadies herself, which is another indicator of emotional distress, and maybe she's a little bit dizzy. She plays with her hair, smooths it out in an effort to make herself more assertive, fixes a fake smile, and then there's anxiety again. Oh, really strange. Very. Then comes to these weird hand movements, these gestures. Is she speaking to someone? Rehearsing what she's going to say to someone? Is she on drugs? Regardless, there's no fear in this. Who believes she's having a hypomania episode, exhibiting signs of mania, but on a lesser scale. So she's almost happy, not depressed, Not scared, but happy. Either way, the conclusions from both are clear. That there is most likely a person she's thinking of, or could have been there, that she's attracted to, that could possibly know something, and the result is Alyssa Lamb's death? I guess so, because that's the last time we ever see her. Now, I couldn't resist, because I do agree with most of what they say, but I see this young woman who steps into an elevator and has forgotten her glasses and can't see the buttons. So she's pushing them, and she stands back, and she's waiting for the doors to close. So that's confusing. And they don't close. So she peeks out very fast to see if someone's holding the door, playing a trick or what, and she doesn't see anybody. Then she's in the corner, again, leaning there, now is she eavesdropping or listening or holding very still? Again, wondering why the elevator isn't moving. Peeks out again, looks, hops out, and then it almost looks like she's doing a box step, back step, side step, front step. Is she dancing? I then she's like a potty dance. Yeah, well she then she's got the hair and the arm thing, which I do think is kind of a sexual thing. Then she gets back into the elevator, less steady. She pushes all the buttons. Now, that is only going to be very annoying because when the elevator does start moving, it's going to stop at every floor and drive her crazy. Now she steps out again, starts with the odd hand gesturing. If you have seen the film, The Clan of the Cave Bear with Daryl Hannah, it looks like the signal for we're having sex, which ties into whose interpretation and then Elissa disappears from view into the vapor. I've never seen that movie, saying it they said that the hand gestures were mine. Yep. Reminded me of that. Huh. Yeah. You have to see the movie. It's hard to say. It's kind of like a fist palm thing twist pull. And it's uh, it just, it's just is that what she's doing? I mean if she'd seen the movie and she's being in a sexual fantasy perhaps that popped into her mind. I mean I, there's no way to know but I wonder. I do wonder. Well Body language, always very interesting to hear about, yeah. especially since this kind of puts like a wholly different spin on how a lot of people viewed her in that video was being scared. So this is definitely a little bit different. Yeah. I think we're going to take a little bit of a turn here too and talk more about the Cecil. We kind of touched on it, how transient types live here, kind of on the edge of skid row, but we haven't really talked about the history of it. So. This is where, again, Anderson pulls us out, adding his own narrative and experience. And in getting ready for his trip to go to L.A. and follow in Elise's footsteps, he does his homework on Cecil. So here's the backstory. It was built in 1924 by W.B. Hanner, who built this hotel in homage to the Hotel Cecil in London. So Hotel Cecil in London, Cecil Hotel in L.A. Mm-hmm. 1920s L.A. was literally bumping and sure to draw the right mix of people that Hannah was expecting into quote its ornate marble lobby with stained glass skylight windows, potted palms, alabaster statuary, brass, gold tone, and marble particulate. So you could imagine this is probably a beautiful hotel in its heyday. Stunning. And we've seen pictures, there's is it, it's beautiful. and the idea of having vacation guests and also more permanent residents which is what we see today as well. This was always the goal that he had in mind. And Hannah he actually started no expense on specially made everything. Literally, this hotel was going to be the jewel of the Wall Street of the West. But, as we know, what followed in 1920, the Great Depression. Dun, 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 dun. So, to ominous music. The first suicide took place on November 19th, 1931. When forty-six-year-old W.K. Morton, like everyone back then, just used initials, arrived under an assumed name and killed himself with a heavy dose of poison. Which is very unusual for a man. Usually, yes. it's the women who are either poisoning or using poison to kill themselves. So, you know, a little bit unusual, but definitely a way to go if you gotta take yourself out. And each year seemed to have its own tragic mark that was left on this hotel. So we talk about dark energy. People continuously committing suicide, that's ultimate guilt, especially if you're a believer in that kind of thing. In March of 1937, a woman named Grace McBurrell spent the night with a sailor at the hotel. And while he slept, she crawled out of the window and jumped to her death, no indication that she was suicidal or anything. Two years later, in September of 1944, Dorothy Jean Purcell, all of 19 years old, she was staying at the hotel with her husband. And she didn't know she was pregnant, and she went into labor. And worse, after she gave birth in the bathroom by herself, she thought the baby was dead. She threw the baby out the window without even up her husband or notifying anyone else that she had had a kid. I mean, she was later convicted of the murder of this child, but we won't go, to that. go into too much detail here. Wow. Well, we'll talk about that more in second cast. hmm and then in 1964, probably one of the most famous cases of a Cecil resident was the murder of Pigeon Goldie Asgood. And she was well known in the area for feeding the birds. She was stabbed, raped, strangled, and killed in the room she lived at the Cecil. There was a suspect, he was cleared, and to this day her murder remains unsolved. And it's estimated that roughly 16 people have committed suicide or have been murdered at the Cecil but Anderson and many others believe that this number is far greater and even as high as one death per room than 600 rooms. Yeah, that 600 number kind of resonated with me when I was reading it. 600, holy moly. Now, Jake Anderson rented a room at the Cecil, and he wanted one on the 14th floor where the video took place, but there were none available because that is where the long-range, long-time tenants live. So, pause then. What was Alyssa doing up there on the 14th floor? A question. Yeah. A question that we've been talking about for ages. Ah, That's even more compelling now. There's tenants up there. She had no business being up there. So, Jake winds up with a room on the 5th floor, which is the floor where Alyssa stayed. And on entering the room, he had this invasive thought. What if I just opened up the window and stepped right out off the ledge? Cool. Hmm. All right, so the mounting apprehension that he felt wasn't helping matters, and upon making his way up to the 14th floor and stepping out of that elevator, a surreal moment in itself after watching Alyssa do the same thing many, many, many times, Jake notices a window which led to the fire escape. Huh. So, mm, right? So he knows that Alyssa wasn't wearing her glasses. Could this be why she didn't perceive a threat? If this is the way she got up to the roof, huh? Why she would want to go up there, anyways? I don't know for sure. Well, think it was on her own accord. I mean, I I mean, I I wear glasses and I was fairly blind without them. So if it's all fuzzy, but why would you go up there if you couldn't see anything anyway? Exactly. I mean, hanging around on a fire escape is never a good idea. And if you're on 14th floors up, that's really not, that's hobby. Jake's thoughts were interrupted by a security guard who started to question his presence on the floor, where, again, only these permanent residents reside. So he was kind of, you know, needed some fresh air at that point anyway. But that was his initial reaction to the Cecil. Invasive thoughts, 14th floor. Wondering what she's doing there. Huh. Now, we'll continue to move through his narrative, and you'll note that some of his transitions are a little jumpy as we move out of Alyssa's world, Jake's world, and then the investigative timeline. So we're going to pop into the autopsy. Now, normally it doesn't take almost half a year for the coroner's office to complete an autopsy report, but in the Alyssa Lamb case, it did tacking on to some of the more bizarre events for this one. So what can we conclude from the autopsy? All right, one, she's found naked in the water tank, presumably her clothes floating around her. But here's what was noted, a pair of black men's shorts, a large green shirt with an Alexandra Keith India Pale Ale logo, a shirt with a deer logo, her extra small red hooded sweatshirt, black lace trimmed underwear. See anything strange there? I see a couple things. It's I mean, I've worn men's shorts before, especially like gym shorts elastic, but having if these were all her clothes, I'd find it very hard for her to be able to wear two large shirts if the deer logo one was large as well, underneath an extra small red hooded sweatshirt. That'd be uncomfortable. It's a strange choice. You know, large under small things. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. Two, then, under external examination, nothing is found. Other than a scar on her knee, not a mark on her. Same internally. Nothing to determine the cause of death. Okay. Yeah. Three, toxicology report is interesting. Elisa was known to be taking multiple medications to manage her bipolar disorder. But she hadn't taken all of them recently. Now, could this have thrown her balance off chemically? You know, if she's not taking everything that she's supposed to be taking. And for those who thought she might be on shrooms or LSD, nope, none of that. No illicit drugs are found in her system. Although they did not test for any date rape drugs. Mm, I wonder why not. Well, it was the official position of the coroner that Alyssa died due to drowning and the police concluded that there was no evidence of foul play. So the autopsy report also states there doesn't seem to be any intent to harm herself, which Alyssa's sister Sarah would stand behind, saying that her sister had not had any thoughts about suicide. One of the things that Anderson notes is that sometime during a two-day period from June 19th to June 21st, the coroner's report was changed Originally, the report stated the cause of death could not be determined, but then it was updated to an accident. So, conclusion, accidental drowning with bipolar disorder contributing to the accident. So there we have it. Straight from the coroner. And that settled everything, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) It seems highly unsettled, even from a coroner perspective. So, what did the LAPD think? Detective Wallace Neal believed that Eliza accessed the roof via the 14th floor, which means one of the two things. Again, that the alarm wasn't working, and remember, only those with the proper credentials were allowed access to the roof. Or an employee gave her access to the roof, which is in line with the coroner's report. Neal believes that she stopped taking her medications, ended up on the roof, and somehow climbed into the water. All fairly peaceful. But like Anderson, we can't imagine the state of mind someone would be the, in climb to a water tank to hide, get away from someone, or whatever the case may be. Needless to say, her death most likely didn't happen quickly, which is another terrifying truth that we have to accept about this case. However, the LAPD did maintain that they find it very hard to believe that she could have been murdered without any DNA evidence left behind. Mm. One of the hallmarks again of this book is the journey into mental illness and how the author's mental illness intertwined with his subject. It was all fairly relatable. And Anderson describes how there was a point in his life where he stopped taking his medications altogether. He was the problem he needed to try to find his true self. So the results of these actions left Anderson in an all-out spiral. He suffered extreme weight loss, hallucinations, strange dreams and reality began to not so distinct. And at one point, he was living out of his office. And upon investigating strange noises one night, he accidentally locked himself out on the roof of the building, and he literally had to scale down to his office. Which, thankfully, the window was open, where could just slide back in, and he ended up going back to sleep in the comfort of his cop. But the situation was strangely like Elisa's. Could this have been what she was going through? Going off her meds, being in a hypomanic state, potentially suffering from delusions or hallucinations that caused her to retreat into the depths of the water tank if she found herself in a situation up on the roof. And suddenly, psychiatric accidental death has a whole new meaning to us. Yeah, I can see that. And so Anderson writes that the vast majority of those who have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder think about suicide. Elisa was thought to maybe have drowned herself. That's rare, but then again, so is jumping to your death, in which case the Cecil Hotel is certainly not lacking. Now, we're not making light of suicide at all. And considering that it is rare, it's highly disturbing that so many jumping deaths have taken place here, in addition to these intrusive thoughts that many feel when they come to the hotel. And while Elisa's sister said that she had not had any suicidal thoughts at all, We know that from her blog that she did kind of think about it here and there. She did, however, think that she was too cowardly for suicide or that it wasn't an option for her. But what we see as she gets closer and closer to her trip, again, these blogs tell a different story. One where she does not think that suicide might be a consideration unless she were to become schizophrenic. But she, quote, I don't think I will kill myself. Jake walks us through some of the drugs that are effective in managing bipolar symptoms. We've gotten this delicate balance. And because bipolar disorder can produce psychosis, like delusions and hallucinations, it's often confused with schizophrenia. So if Elisa were to go off for mood stabilizers cold turkey, what she experienced in the elevator that night could have been something akin to schizophrenia, and would she have wanted to end it then? That, that. Yeah, it's so hard to guess what was happening in her head watching that video. Some indicators, but not enough to be absolutely certain of anything. But now we come to a critical point in Jake Anderson's research where he almost gives up. It was the summer of 2015. He's throwing his hands up in the air. No one's going to reveal any further information. The police have stopped their investigation. They didn't comment, refused to comment. The Cecil has kept its mouth shut, continuing to hide its secrets. However, just before quitting completely, he hears that David and Yinna Lam, Alyssa's parents, have decided to file a civil lawsuit against the Cecil Hotel for criminal negligence and safety conditions, and someone's going to have to answer to them. So, hence, the Lam lawsuit which cited negligence as a cause of wrongful death. The counter-response was that Alyssa herself was negligent and careless, and that her parents were actually negligent, too. Oof. That's horrible. Oh, that had to hurt. Oh, man. Well, but now there's some good stuff in this deposition for Jake to look at. All right, so Amy Price, the general manager is the one who books Elisa into the shared room on January 28th. But she's moved to a private room on January 31st after her roommates complained about her strange behavior. Price also noted that the water tanks were difficult to asset and that the roof was closed to guests. She and chief engineer Pedro Tobar would agree that the door to the roof was activated with an alarm, the alarm we keep hearing about, that would alert the front desk to anyone trying to obtain access, but there were also three exterior fire escapes leading to the roof. We know that the alarm was not activated on the night of January 31st. Okay, so Tavar does state that when the LAPD and the K-9 units were up on the roof, no one climbed up to the water tanks to look inside them, again, because they were just too difficult The access, I guess. So, it's highly unlikely that anyone would have been up there, I guess. So, the lands did have an engineer who presented an analysis who concluded that the roof was, in fact, dangerous to guests and tenants. As they had most certainly been able to get access to the roof, the graffiti was evidence of this. And also, the water tanks did not have a locking mechanism, therefore they were not secure. Anyone could open them if they had wanted to, and contamination was possible and we know did happen. Also, the water tanks were a hazard to both guests and hotel employees, because if someone slipped or went into the tank, there was nothing on the inside to help them get out. And finally, there was no forensic evidence up on the roof. The dogs didn't even pick up a scent. And this is a huge, huge problem for Anderson and John Warden, whom we've discussed before. He says, quote, How do you rule out foul play if you can't determine the path she took on the roof? And if you can't establish with trace evidence that she walked up there and touched things with her hands, how can we even be sure she moved up there on her own accord? End quote. The question needs to be asked How did the LAPD not even think to look into the tapes? If we want to talk conspiracy, which, yes, we will get into more conspiracies. The LAPD ruled the death as an accident based on the coroner's findings. The coroner will also say that Elise's death was an accident based on what the LAPD said. So, (laughs) wrap your minds around that. How can a logical conclusion be based on what they didn't do? Anderson Mm -hmm. wanted to be there for the ruling on this civil case. He took a very, very long train ride to be there. And when he checked in, he was told that Judge Howard's home actually dismissed it the previous week. So while the trial is expected to present a decent amount of information, possibly not known as until that point, Anderson was a researcher at heart. He was disappointed in himself because he hadn't done his homework. He'd literally taken this trip for nothing because he didn't realize it was dismissed. So the lead attorney made a statement on behalf of the Land family that said, quote, The case speaks to the horrors of mental illness. Aliza Lamb was not killed by a boogeyman or haunted hotel. She fell off her medication, had a psychotic break, accessed the roof, found the water tank, and died. There was no deliberation, and the judge dismissed the case after granting the defense motion. A jury wouldn't get to hear the case. The LAPD and the Cecil would remain silent. No new evidence would be brought forth. And as we spent the last episode talking about all of this stuff. It really only does get stranger from here. And that concludes part one of our series on Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Case of Alyssa Lamb. So tune in next time for part two, where we're going to take a deep dive into conspiracy theories, police corruption, Cecil dirty business deals, criminal enterprises operating in and out of the Cecil, more on the autopsy of the video itself, evaluating the evidence and lots of theories on what could have happened and how it all impacted a Canadian visitor, Alyssa Lamb, who would lose her life and become famous for her behavior in an elevator. Now, get a start on our next book, A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris, on the Jeffrey MacDonald case. Now, I read Fatal Vision by Joe McGuinness years ago, And I saw the TV miniseries way back then, so the Jeffrey McDonald case was a slam dunk. All right, so for those who aren't familiar, a medical doctor and a captain in the U.S. Army out of Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina, was arrested and eventually convicted of the murders of his pregnant wife, Colette, and their two little girls, Kimberly and Kristen, who were like five and two years old at the time, in February 1970. Doesn't this remind you of Chris Watts, Shanann, Bella, and CeCe from 2017? Oh, a little bit like that. Oh, yeah. Now, Errol Morris makes it very clear that the McDonald conviction isn't quite as slam-dunked as I had thought. He raises a lot of issues about the investigation that were not handled correctly and refutes some of the assumptions that are just not plain true. In one review, a wilderness of errors described as, quote, the culmination of an investigation spanning over 20 years, and a masterly reinvention of the true crime thriller. That caught my uh, eye. Reinvention of the true crime thriller, we had to be As you know, we've been moving a little bit slower considering this year and all the life events and things that have been going on. Take your time a little bit with this one. It is a little bit lengthy, but it is very detailed and very eye-opening. just reminds me of some of things that we saw with our book in terms of Charles Cullen and the complete avoidance of facts mm-hmm. and how people try to cover things up just because they had made an assumption or they didn't want something to come out and give somebody a bad name. Exactly. So thank you again, as always, for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Murder Shelf Book Club, Club, or an email to Jill and Tara at murdershelfbookclub We definitely love to hear from you. So follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean. I believe we are also on iHeartRadio as well now too. Pandora. 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 Believe it or not, yep. let us just have our episodes pop up so you can click on it the next time that you're uh, kind of running through your podcast. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. Leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear it. So until next time, writer bookies, happy reading. Thank you, guys. Take care. Written and produced by Tara and Jill All rights Reserved. Music by Carl Hoshina and lyrics by Otto Harbach. Good up a little closer, lovey mine, cuddle up and be my little clinging vine, like to feel your cheeks so rosy, like to make you comfy, cozy, cause I love from